Hey, Scott Jennings here, host of the Flyover Country podcast. Thanks for joining us. For the next two weeks, I wanted to do something uh, different than our normal panel discussions. I have invited two people that I really admire and find credible from politics for a one-on-one interview about the evolving nature of the two political parties and what we can expect because of that evolution in 2024. This first interview this week is with an old friend of mine named Patrick Ruffini. He is a founding partner of a firm called Echelon Insights. You may have heard of Patrick lately because he has written a book about how the Republican Party is changing. His new book is called Party of the People Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the Republican Party. We're going to talk about why that's happened during the Trump years. What does that mean for Republican Party policy? You know, the Republican platform. And what does that look like in 2024? Next week, we're going to have an interview with a Democrat strategist that I've known for a long time named Mark Riddle, a Kentucky, and he lives in Florida now. He and I do a lot of public speaking together, and I'm going to have Mark on to respond to some of what Patrick says and to talk about his views on the evolving nature of the Democratic Party. So this is a two-part uh, series, part one coming up today with my friend Patrick Ruffini from Echelon Insights. We're talking about his book called Party of the People, right here on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Hey, Scott Jennings and Patrick Ruffini is here. Patrick, thanks for uh, being with us on the Flyover Country podcast today. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be with you. Patrick and I have known each other uh, for a very long time, worked uh, for a few years together uh, during the George W. Bush uh, campaigns and, and that era. And Patrick has gone on to found a very, very well thought of firm called Echelon Insights, which is billed as a next generation polling analytics and intelligence firm. And I want to talk about, Patrick, some of your work at the firm. But you're here today to talk about this book that you have written, which is born out of some of the work that you do, called Party of the People, uh, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. So, Patrick, let us start there with your book. Why did you write it? And what were your conclusions? What's the top line out of this uh, this in-depth piece you put together? Well, I I wrote this partly. Um, partly, my motivation was to figure out, uh, uh, you know, whether I would have a job in twenty years, and uh, maybe be, maybe I'm being a little dramatic, but um, it seemed like um, heading into twenty sixteen, there was this huge narrative that the Republican Party was really on its last legs demographically. Mm-hmm. Um, you had the twenty twelve autopsy, which talked about the need to moderate the party's position on immigration to appeal to Hispanic voters because we weren't doing uh, doing a very good job of it. Um, and um, you had obviously the demography is destiny idea, the idea that as the country grows more non-white, as more, more diverse, um, Republicans are increasingly going to have a hard time uh, winning in, in future elections. And then, you know, in 2016, you have a candidate, Donald Trump, who takes that autopsy and does the very opposite, and he wins. And um, this is surprising to a lot of people because, you know, this is uh, the country still growing more diverse. 
um you know the the media had this narrative that he is this uniquely noxious figure when it comes to race relations when it comes to when it comes to immigration insulting mexicans in his announcement speech all of that and yet not only does he run up the score in a big way in uh, the, with the white working class and in places where previously Republicans had struggled to break through like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, he also does really no worse among Latino voters, uh, African-American voters, um, in fact, does a few points better. And in 2020, he supercharges these gains. Um, so you see a big shift among Latino voters. You see uh, more of a shift, continuing more of a shift among African-American voters. This despite, you know, the midterm performance, this has continued. Um so it seems like we, um, you know, that autopsy that, um, you know, I remember well as a Republican strategist from, uh, uh, you know, the Romney era and the Bush era before then, um, you know, it seems like that autopsy, you know, they were right in their, let's say, diagnosis of the problem, but wrong about what it would take to actually change the party, diversify the party, and not just on racial lines, but on class lines. Um, so it, right there in the title of my book, you know, Democrats were always seen as party of the working class, party of the blue collar worker, party of the people. That was their name. But that name they call themselves. And they've gradually lost that identity. Um, and now you're seeing Republicans picking up more and more uh, working class voters, Latino voters, black voters. And I argue it's all part of the same trend. It's all people, working class people who have a similar belief system. That's very different than the worldview of folks uh, in the elite in Washington, D.C. and New York City and along the coasts. So you said a couple of things that I want to I want to dig into. One uh, has to do with the 2012 autopsy. And I agree with you that they were correct in, in that the Republican Party to survive needs to pick up more, uh, you know, in that case, Hispanic voters, but voters of all uh, races. I guess where they were wrong is just in the policy diagnosis. And there was a theory there for a few years that coming out of 2012, that the party, in order to attract Hispanic voters, needed to moderate itself on immigration policy and, and embrace uh, you know, what we would consider today to be a more moderate or even liberal immigration policy. That several politicians you know, come out for bipartisan immigration reform, an issue that had been percolating really for a number of years, dating back to George W. Bush. So right about the problem, right about the need for, for new kinds of voters, but wrong about the policy because Trump obviously ran the exact opposite direction. It makes me wonder, it makes me wonder about the further evolution of the Republican platform. And you know, the, the belief that you can attract, you know, this cohort of voters with this policy pronouncement. And, and now you see some upheaval in the Republican platform. And are the correct assumptions being made about how to further attract those voters. Do you foresee, based on your research, uh, further uh, evolution of the Republican platform and, and in ways that would really sort of challenge conventional wisdom or even historical party orthodoxy? Well, if we have a platform in 2024, we didn't have one in 2020. It was the exact, they, they kind of copy pasted the 2016 platform. But I take your point that you know, what does this mean for pol the policy direction of the party? And you've got a number of thinkers and um, policy mavens, let's say, in the Republican Party and the conservative movement, from Warren Cass and American Compass, talking about, you know, Republicans being 
more of a pro-labor policy a party. You've got uh, senators like J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, um, really trying to stake out a different sort of policy agenda in the Senate that is not uh, does not uh, you know kind of sing from the hymn book of free markets and internationalism and the kind of the Reagan era emphasis um, that really dominated the GOP for so many decades. So you see a lot of that. Um, I think, yeah, I think we will see, continue to see more of that. You'll see more policy entrepreneurs who are trying to capitalize on this direction. But I do feel like the shift among voters is just something that you know, it's happening independently of the policy conversation in Washington. So I think that there is, you know, a, a policy direction uh, and partly it's a change in emphasis, um, right? It, it's, uh, you know, more border security, immigration as an issue, right? That that evolved uh, as uh, the policy agenda. You saw evolution on trade, but it's not clear that this new base of voters is demanding anything kind of fundamentally different on, let's say, taxation, regulation, um, those sorts of issues. And you do have people inside the party saying the party needs to change on on all those issues. But I don't really see that as a policy priority. I think that you've got um, this common sense working class majority that, um, you know, is um, really says uh, secure the border. Um says we need to stand up for American jobs and be skeptical of globalization and stand up for the American worker. Beyond that, right, um, it's hard to see. And, you know, you've got a lot of people who are trying to, let's say, maybe import their own agenda uh, and try to put it on top of these trends. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's going to be. That's going to that's what's going to drive a further shift forward. I, I do think that um, you know, it is a similar, uh, you know, a common belief system, right, across working class voters of all different races, um, that they don't like what's happening um, with inflation, with crime. And they're really re responding to what's coming out of the Biden White House right now. Uh, it's less about what the Republican Party is doing than what the Democrats are doing and the perceived failures of the Biden administration. It, yeah, the, the conversation about policy and the attraction of voters to certain policy, I brought it up because of two reasons. One, it does seem to me that the Republicans um, have, and I say that the, the royal Republicans, not all Republicans, mm -hmm. but some Republicans have really tried to uh, mobilize drastic changes in what you consider to be you know, traditional Republican uh, policy orthodoxy. You mentioned a few of the the new senators that have come to town, but it all started with Trump. And obviously he challenged po uh, policy orthodoxy on trade, uh, somewhat on foreign policy in uh, uh, some other areas in 2016. So it feels like the Republicans are really evolving. And I, I think there's some parts of it that is trying to be responsive to new voters that you've written about in your book. Some of it to me is also... Uh, uh, you know, trying to add on pet issues that may or may not fit. But there's also a question, in my opinion, about whether some of these new voters are actually attracted to policy at all or attitude. And that's yeah. a question I wanted to ask you about your research and, and what you've done over the last several years in studying this era of politics. 
is it really policy? I've argued on TV before, we may just in fact be living in a post-policy environment. We overanalyze these policies. People don't yeah. really analyze them all that deeply, so why should we? But they do attract to attitude. And I think one of the things that was attractive about Trump was attitude. He stood on stage with 18 other Republicans, and he was the only one that looked and sounded and felt different than the other 18 people up there. And for him, he, he's never really been all that strict on policy, and he's willing to change his mind about yeah. it. You know, he's he's not somebody who 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 sticks to a policy position if he thinks it's it's hurting him or not popular. What's your opinion? Is it really about policy or is it really more about just general attitude and disposition that you see people flowing in and out of the Republican Party? I don't think you can you can doubt that that is really what's happening here, uh, that it really is attitude. It really is, uh, you know, the kind of the idea uh, first to, to hold among Republicans that he is somebody who's going to fight, uh, you know, he's going to fight the establishment. Um, he's a businessman. He's not a career politician. I mean, these are things you hear again and again that, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think you're right that, you know, we overplay the policy aspect uh, pretty dramatically. But, you know, I would point to 2012, right? Mitt Romney got in trouble. And this was the what the autopsy was about. Because he took this hardline position on immigration. He said uh, people should self-deport themselves. In fact, Donald Trump criticized him for saying that. Um, he also said, uh, you know, he was also pretty strong for tariffs uh, and getting tough on China. Right. Which was also a Trumpian position. But when you look at Mitt Romney as a personality, right, as, as a political figure, he just couldn't be any more different than Donald Trump. And people responded accordingly. And people responded, by the way, in both directions. So well, I, I just just to, to I, I mean, I, I ran Mitt's campaign in Ohio in 2012 and, and saw up close the reaction to Romney from, you know, the more rural and working class parts of Ohio. I mean, we turned out a lot of voters. Democrats turned out more. Uh, the Obama people ran a, a great campaign. But then if you look at 2016, the kinds of margins that Trump got in yeah. these you know, white uh, working class and rural counties. I mean, it was crazy, you know, the kinds of margins they were running up. And I and I always imagined uh, that part of the issue was voters who live in those areas don't have college degrees. You know, they're they they, they don't have white collar jobs. They don't sit in cubicles all day. Their life experience is so different than what Mitt Romney's is. And he had a hard time connecting to them at a, you know, just at a personal level. Now, their life experience is also different than Trump's. I mean, this is a rich guy from New York City. But what he did have going for him was the ability to speak their language and to exhibit an attitude that they did identify with. So, look, I'm not a rich New Yorker, but I do recognize what he's saying and, and the attitude, you know, through which he's saying it. And that was that was all the connection they needed to get more excited about Trump uh, than they did about Romney, uh, uh, which they had not gotten super excited about four years prior. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's it's the appeal of somebody who, you know, the kind of old traitor to your class idea, the person who, you know, knows the system is rigged, uh, rigged and he's going to unrig it on your behalf. And he knows what needs to be done to do that. You said that some of the voters you're studying um, that are coming into the Republican Party are responding mostly to what they're seeing out of the Biden White House. I concur with that. Um, I want to ask you what those policies are. And is it just 
you know, a lack of attention to certain problems or is it actual policy pronouncements they disagree with? But also, I want to revisit this idea of the the evolution of party platforms. As I said, I, I mean, the Republicans are evolving rapidly into an anti-trade, anti-corporate party. The Democrats, though, don't appear to me to be changing at all in terms of their. In fact, they appear to be doubling down on a lot of the things that are driving these working class voters away. So, A, tell me about what you see out of the Biden White House that's pushing these people into the Republican Party. And B, what do you make of the fact that Republicans are evolving rapidly on their platforms and Democrats just simply aren't? Yeah, I think that the fact that you're seeing a real convergence on a lot of economic policy ideas um, that I think in some ways is trying to render the Republican brand less toxic um, from a working class perspective. Now, you had Donald Trump the other day kind of undo some of this going out the other day and saying we're going to go and back and try to repeal Obamacare again, which was a political disaster when he tried to do it the first time. Um, but overall, the trend in the Republican Party has been, uh, you know, to much to the chagrin and uh, of Republicans like me, has been uh, towards more acceptance of spending and debt and and things like that when, you know, when we're in power. Um, that's not necessarily a particularly new thing. I think it should become a little bit more explicit. But um, really, voters are seeing very little difference on these economic policy agenda items. Um, that Democrats used to, that used to be the Democrats calling card, that they were the party of the common man, that they were going to stand up for you against uh, the rich people who are trying to take advantage of you, right? That was, that really for 150 years was the message of the Democratic Party. And now we don't see that really as much anymore. It's not that it's not in their platform. I just feel like it's heard less, people understand it less. So what happens when, you know, those economic uh, you know, those economic differences go away. All you're left with is cultural differences. Um, and that's where voters are polarizing. And, um, you know, on a lot of those cultural issues, I think there are two things happening. One, you have a lot of Hispanic and Black voters who don't agree with the message of the Democratic Party on those cultural issues. And it just makes it easier for them to move away from the Democratic Party. They do agree with what Trump is saying and Trump's attitude. And not just... You know, in some sense, I think Trump was smart initially, right, in the way I think he reoriented the cultural issues away from issues like abortion, uh, gay marriage, right, that were really dominant in, you know, kind of discourse uh, in, in the Republican Party. Um, the Republican Party was seen as a very socially conservative party. Um, and he really reoriented the conversation around, let's say, cultural issues towards, again, that attitude. The idea that he's not going to be politically correct, that he's going to just stand up for people in the middle of the country uh, and their, you know, whatever, you know, whatever they believe um, that he is going to, uh, you know, take on crime, take on immigration, which are also kind of culturally laden questions. Um, so I think that that to some extent, Trump has redefined, redefined the party in a more palatable way. Such these kind of these soft Democrats could come over. Right. Um, and people and by the way, these people are not. You look at the results in Ohio, the abortion referendum. Uh, it's not like the people who came over, the Obama Trump voters who came over in 2016, were necessarily voting on the pro-life side. If anything, you know, there's a big underperformance for the pro-life side, and specifically in those counties, which just goes to show you the kind of 
messaging and positioning, I think that Trump had that was different from traditional Republicans. Um, but I also think the second thing, just to just to kind of add on, it's just the performance. I mean, just the poor performance of the Biden White House on inflation specifically, I think has been toxic for uh, you know anyone in the working class, but um, especially among non-white working class voters, many of whom still identify as Democrats. Um, so they just have a big, big room to fall, uh, I think. And, um, you know, that you know, this is really uh, uh, this is really helping that. So, by the way, that's the voice of Patrick Ruffini of a firm called Echelon Insights. He has a new book out that we're talking about today called Party of the People. And Patrick's done a lot of work over the years, polling and data analytics. And he's written this great book about the evolving nature of uh, the Republican Party. But then also, uh, by definition, the evolving nature of the Democratic Party, we're discussing uh, what that means from a policy perspective. One thing about the Democrats that sort of flummoxes me is that I get the feeling sometimes they don't quite understand how Biden got more votes than Trump. And by that, I mean a lot of people who live in suburbs that have, you know, sort of centrist or even center right viewpoints, college degrees, you know, basically, you know, business type people, white collar type people wound up voting for Biden. And yet I don't feel necessarily like they have recognized that from a policy perspective. Like, I don't think they I don't think those voters that voted for Biden are necessarily hot to trot for, you know, massive upheaval because of climate change. I don't think they're hot to trot for the, you know, sort of the social reengineering that, that the Biden people are all in on. I think they just didn't like Trump. And so they go with Biden thinking they're going to get a moderate Democrat. But what they've really gotten is a very probably the most liberal Democrat president we've ever had. And now I'm wondering, are they going to flow back? You know, are they going to be willing to flow away and go back to the Republican Party because the Democrats and specifically Joe Biden just didn't keep up with what they thought they were getting, which is a moderate Democrat, uh, you know, who, who, you know, uh, they they were hoping uh, would be less anxiety inducing than Donald Trump, and and now they they may well be thinking he's more anxiety inducing, at least from an economic perspective, than Trump ever was. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I th I think that um uh you know the idea that the, that Biden was going to come in and calm things down, and yeah. you know when it comes to everything from inflation to the crime situation, you know if you're in a close in suburb, you know you are concerned about crime in the cities and crime spilling out of the big out of the out of the cities and so this idea that you know you have a lot of these things that are just running unchecked uh, was certainly not what people expected i think when they voted um for joe biden another another group of folks who you know again i think it's it's pretty telling for instance that they went with um you know, the college, the white college educated left uh, pet hobby horse, which was uh, the climate agenda. Um, and because in polling, you see it, and that's the group that is, um, you know, obsessed with that issue. Now, when it, it came to a choice of putting together that spending package that became called the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, you know, they had a choice. Are we going to uh, do a bunch of social spending, uh, spend on, let's say, the so-called care economy, those pink collar jobs, uh, you know, uh, caregiving, um, where a lot of the working class members of the Democratic coalition actually work. 
or are we going to do climate? And they decided to do climate. Um, but mm -hmm. when you actually look at where climate polls among different groups of Democrats, it polls the worst among black Democrats, it polls the worst among Hispanic Democrats, because all they see are things that are going to cause upheaval that are going to force them to buy cars that they can't afford um, and are going to potentially cost their jobs. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the, the, this has been a misreading, right? I mean, they believed and thought that this was going to be because there was this big global pandemic, a second new deal. And instead, you know, we've just had more chaos um, because they doubled down on the spending, right? That eventually caused, and they try to claim the spending itself was popular, but the results of that were very unpopular, which was uh, a 20% increase in prices. Back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about these voters coming into the Republican Party and surprising everyone because Donald Trump won. He won the Electoral College. Then he lost the Electoral College. And then in both cases, uh, lost the national popular vote by several million votes in an increasing fashion from 16 to 20. Yeah. So let me challenge let me challenge your comment uh, and ask you to project about about what will come next, because, if you know, yes, I agree. Uh, the coalition of voters supporting the Republicans did change and we are attracting more uh, non-traditional voters to the, you know, to the Republican coalition. But at the same time, it wasn't enough to manifest itself yeah. into a national popular vote win. And you and I both worked for the for the last president who did manifest a national popular vote win, George W. Bush. And he did draw from a lot of people from across. I mean, he did attract a lot of non-traditional voters as well. Some Hispanics, in fact, uh, who now come are coming back to the Republicans. Can this coalition restore the Republican Party to one that could win the national popular vote? Or is Trump something of a of a two-edged sword and that he attracts people but he also yeah. drives more people away <laughs> and so the the math sort of you know it either washes out at best or is a net negative at worst yeah i mean so that's a really interesting question because the the really attraction of trump from a, a like if, I'm, if you're a political data guy like me uh the real attraction of trump was uh, in some ways that he was able to engineer this uh this unlikely victory in 2016 where he won the electoral college uh, and won these states that Republicans had, had dreamed after for years, like Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, but still, you know, losing. Uh, remember, before then, it was that Democrats had the better, stronger electoral coalition. Um, so I think we're not seeing that particular advantage go away. Um, but the big question is, if Trump himself remains on the top of the ticket, which is, you know, if he, if he is nominated again, it will be an, an almost historically unprecedented uh, you know, former president, uh, you know, being nominated um, by the party, almost historically unprecedented. Um, you know, there is a sense, I think, among the general electorate, although not the primary electorate, that he has passed his sell-by date. Um, uh, and that is mitigating against, I think, the huge gains that um, would be waiting for us, right, if... Um, you know, if we're able to fully take advantage of Biden's weaknesses and the, and the well, that, weaknesses well, that's of the Biden question. administration, is, right? Is there a Republican right. that brings you the the new advantage of this new coalition that Trump obviously yeah. unlocked, but removes the baggage, or or are these new voters sort of just into Trump enough to 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 go back and forth, or maybe even not to vote? 
That's what I wonder really about the next election is a nomination of Trump is going to test uh, a few things. But if we don't nominate Trump, it's going to really test, you know, some of these new folks. And I was and, and we're going to take a break here in a second. But, but something to ruminate on is, does Trump give Republicans the best or worst chance to defeat Joe Biden? The conventional wisdom is for for most of this primary that he gives you the worst chance. And I've said that on TV. But now I'm I'm coming around to the idea that perhaps he may, he may give the Republicans the best chance. We'll talk about that question and more as we continue our conversation on Flower Country with Patrick Ruffini of Echelon Insights, an author who has a book out called Party of the People Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. More with Patrick on Flower Country after this. Hey there, Flyover Country listeners. Today's episode is brought to you by the Bluegrass Media Lab, Kentucky's premier media studio. The Bluegrass Media Lab offers a wide array of services, including video production, podcasting, live shot broadcasting, web development, media training, and more. You name it, they do it. Head over to bluegrassmedialab.com today to get in touch. Now, back to more Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Welcome back to Flyover Country. It's Scott Jennings. My friend and guest this week is Patrick Rafiti from Echelon Insights, a well-known pollster and data analytics guy inside the Republican Party. He has a book out called Party of the People about how the Republican Party is changing by attracting uh, non-traditional voters to the party, working class voters and multiracial uh, coalition that's emerging uh, to be a real power base for the Republican Party. Before we took a break, we were discussing the prospects of this coalition helping Donald Trump get reelected in 2024. To me, there is an emerging debate, Patrick, about whether Trump gives the party the best or worst chance to defeat Joe Biden and recapture the White House. It seems to me most of the Republican primary, there's really only been one question, and that is it's a it's a question of strategic voting. Trump's the most likely to lose. Therefore, you must nominate Nikki Haley. You must nominate Ron DeSantis, whoever. And I think a lot of people, a lot of pundits, I, I certainly fell into this category for a while, thought, yeah, that, that seems right. Look at the polling. But the more we go along and the more I think about it, two things have jumped out at me. Number one, well, Trump's also beating Biden now. And, and if you look inside some of that polling, a lot of it is borne out in the work you've done. It's, you know, in the in the latest NBC News poll that came out a couple of weeks ago, he was getting 20 percent of black voters yeah. nationally. I mean, this is not a fluke. This is a real thing that yeah. you've you've obviously uncovered. And two, I also wonder about the people that are specific to and loyal to Trump just not voting if he's not the nominee. So when you consider some of these people that have come to the Republican Party and they've only ever known Trump as the leader of the party, and two, some of these folks that have come into politics only because of Trump and may go out if he goes out, it makes me wonder if Trump is not, in fact, the strongest possibility, not the weakest, as Haley and DeSantis have argued. Where do you come down on that uh, debate right now? Well, I think if you actually look at some of those polls uh, that you actually see Haley and DeSantis are also capturing about 20 percent of the black vote. So there's actually mm -hmm. relatively little difference um, uh, among different parts of these coalitions. I think if we were talking in 2016, I would absolutely tell you that Republicans need to make a choice. But like, which which coalition are they going to go with? And there was a really big difference in terms of how Trump performed versus how down ballot candidates performed. But that's 
gradually washed away. Uh, this is a party more and more in Donald Trump's image. Uh, the voting patterns um, that were set in 2016 and 2020 kind of manifest down ballot, right? I mean, in that, you, you know, you have, let's say, Brian Kemp, somebody who is very highly electorally successful, who has actually successfully taken on Donald Trump and defended himself against uh, Donald Trump and, and a, a Trump fun fueled primary challenge um, that what you see what you see in Georgia and what he has been able to do is he wins everywhere Donald Trump won and he wins back some of those suburban voters. So I think that that is really the most likely um, the most likely outcome uh, of, uh, of even if it's a slightly different, more Romney-esque coalition. Um, I don't think, you know, frankly, I don't think those Trump voters are going to abandon a Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis uh, if the choice is Joe Biden. It doesn't because it doesn't sound like the Democrats are, are really changing. Uh, so you think so, so? So even if Donald Trump were to lose a primary and say this thing is rigged, you can't trust these Republicans. Right. The party screwed me. The RNC screwed me. And if you love Donald Trump and you love what I represent, you need to teach these elites a lesson and sit this out and show them that we're not going to be had again. You think you believe most voters, most Republicans would stick with the, the two most likely outcomes here, which are DeSantis and Haley? I think they would. I think they would. I mean, I think you have the counter argument, which is what if this is like the Georgia midterms, right, in, in 2021, where he basically did exactly that, that the same thing. I think that's easier to do in, you know, kind of in a down ballot election rather than a presidential election. I just don't think like a whole lot of people will sit this out. The only bit of uncertainty is I don't know that it's that hardcore MAGA voter that is going to sit it out. Um, I do worry about, you know, that sort of maybe that younger Latino voter who came of age in the age of Trump, but he's really the only Republican that they know. Uh, you know, Trump really defines them. Yeah. And for whatever reason, you know, they like him. They like his personality. Um, and, you know, the, the real choice is, you know, am I going to go there and vote and potentially for a good chance they're going to vote for Trump or are they not going to vote at all? Because if you have a candidate who kind of takes down the temperature, uh, you know, in terms of the intensity and the vitriol, you know, that could also mean, you know, it could mean a lot of things, but it could mean a lower turnout. Yeah. So I think that there's there is a little bit of risk, right, uh, without Trump that you don't have some of that turnout. But I do kind of think that the baggage more than outweighs um, uh, more than outweighs that benefit. Something we're wrestling with here in Kentucky, where I live and, and record our Flower Country podcast, is the outcome of the governor's race from from 2023. Republicans nominated a young, dynamic African-American guy, the state attorney general, Daniel Cameron, good good friend of mine, and helped him get elected AG back in, in 2019. Uh, but he lost to Andy Bashir, popular Democrat incumbent, in a state that Donald Trump mops up in, in two straight elections. There was a analysis done by a, a group called Decision Desk, which I'm sure you follow uh, like I do, and they estimated that about 80% of Joe Biden's Kentucky voters from 20 turned out and voted, obviously, for Bashir, but they estimated that only about half of Donald Trump's voters turned out and participated in the election. And since Election Day here in Kentucky, I've been wrestling with this idea of, you know, are these Trump voters only interested in voting for Donald Trump? Because Daniel Cameron was endorsed by Trump. He ran all of his commercials were about how he supported Trump and Trump supported him. I mean, effectively, his entire campaign in, the, in October was you've got to make a choice between Biden and Bashir 
and Trump and Cameron and all these Trump people set the election out. And so as we start to explore turnout and what could happen in 24 with or without Trump, I guess my views have been somewhat uh, affected by the fact that all these Trump people just literally uh, abandoned Daniel Cameron here. Now, maybe it's a state race and they don't care as much. Maybe to them, all politics is federal. And that's when they're going to turn out uh, only in presidential years. But it was kind of stunning, honestly, to see a guy run so hard on Trump right. in a state where Trump dominates and to have those people not show up. I think that uh, that exposes a, a deeper problem in the Republican Party is that um, I think too many Republicans are trying to define themselves in one way or the other relative to Donald Trump rather than building up their own brand. And I think this is a case study of, uh, you know, uh, when you have, um, you know, whether it's a red state or blue state, uh, when you have somebody, um, let's say a Brian Kemp or a Glenn Youngkin, or, uh, you know, even somebody who, you know, is more uh, conventionally conservative, um, when they have and, and spend a lot of time building up their own personal brand independent of uh, Donald Trump, um, who brings a lot of, of of baggage right to to the ticket? Um, you know, certainly you think more ups, even in a state where he has more upside than downside. Um, mm -hmm. I just think that you know maybe he should have done a little bit more uh, to define himself um, as opposed to you know you know trying to put forward this uh, this uh, image of uh, you know, of himself as uh, you know a friend of Trump. Um, I don't really buy into that turnout analysis, actually. Um, I do think that Bashir was successful in actually shifting over a bunch of voters. So it's not that every everyone who turned out to vote for Bashir had voted for Joe Biden. I think that, you know, we're seeing in a lot of races when, you know, people can establish that strong personal brand that they can win over a lot of people who voted for Trump. And the same is true on the other side. Um, that you have a, a guy like Glenn Youngkin, a guy like Brian Kemp can win over a lot of people who voted for Joe Biden. What I see in the map, uh, and I do agree, I think some Trump voters and some Republicans voted for uh, even in rural areas, um, um, voted for Bashir. I mean, there's no question about it. While voting for every other Republican on the ballot, if you look at the map in Kentucky, though, the, the collars around Louisville and Lexington are two real urban areas. And even Northern Kentucky, sort of a suburban Cincinnati area. Uh, lots of blue, lots of blue. And these are, you know, this is where uh, college educated white collar voters live in Kentucky. And it returns me to a something you said earlier and something you've argued about in your book, which is the determination of your politics right now is mostly due to, uh, or mostly uh, predicted by your educational attainment. And is that still going to be the case next year, I think, is a, is a core question. I mean, I've, I've argued this as well on television that having a college, if I know if, we, if, if I know your gender and I know if you have a college degree, I can with some, you know, high likelihood <laughs> of, of accuracy, pick who you're going to vote for. And so I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about, uh, you know, if you look at Bashir's winning coalition, um, he obviously got the college educated crowd. And even though they may have voted Republican down the ballot, and I'm guessing that's what Biden's counting on next time around. It's just a question of whether they've done enough to to keep those people in the fold. Bashir, I think, had a high job approval, so it was easy for them to say, well, he hasn't committed any fireable offenses. I'm not sure that's true for Biden. I think a lot right. of college-educated voters 
who consider themselves to be moderate or even center right would say, man, uh, Joe Biden has committed a lot of firing offenses, uh, whether it's on policy that he's pushed or social issues that he's fell into, or even now it seems like he's caving on Israel. He may have committed a number of firing offenses, and I, I think they may be undercounting the possibility of that happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, uh, we kind of saw it in the recent debate between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom, right? Um, that, um, uh, you know, I, I think to to an extent, uh, you had uh, Newsom getting up there and really having to defend the indefensible in terms of what's happening in these blue states. And what's happening in these blue states is also just kind of happening in the country writ large. At least people believe that pretty strongly. And um, think about somebody who is as, let's say, more compelling a messenger as Gavin Newsom. Can't really stand up and really defend his record or what's going on with the Biden-Harris agenda or what's going on in these blue states. How is Joe Biden, who's going to be a year older than he is now, going to do that on the debate stage? Yeah, totally, totally agree. I, I think one thing we learned in the DeSantis-Newsom debate is that liberal Democrats are not used to being questioned about some of the more absolute radical outside the mainstream views they have, whether that's on governance or whether that's just on you know, their views of culture and society. They, they live in bubbles and they do not often face critical questions uh, about some of these things that are objectively crazy to most voters. It's not crazy necessarily to their base, but to most voters, it is crazy. And uh, and I think Newsom really struggled with just sort of basic questioning. And I assume Biden's going to struggle with it as well, uh, because, as you pointed out, you know, he's a he's a year older next year than he is today. And um, he's never really been all that uh, uh, agile on a debate stage anyway. I actually wonder if they are going to debate. I mean, if you were running either of these campaigns, I assume Trump will want to debate Biden. But if you were Biden's people, would you would you debate this guy? I would do everything possible to avoid it. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, they really lucked out right last year because uh, Trump really fumbled in that first debate. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it was just too hot. Most incumbents do. Most incumbent presidents. Yeah. I mean, o Obama, you know, pooped the bed against <laughs> Mitt Romney in that yeah. first debate back in 2012. Right. You know, and so, yeah, they, they are very, uh, you know, want to defend their record. But again, that that track record isn't great. Uh, and that's oftentimes when challengers really can come up on you. All right. I'm going to uh, this Patrick Ruffini, by the way, from Echelon Insights. We're having him on the pod this week uh, because he's written a really fascinating new book called Party of the People. Patrick's one of the smartest sort of polling and data analytics guys I know in the Republican Party. And we've uh, known each other for a very long time, and I trust his his judgment on things. That I highly encourage you to buy the book. Let's um let's sort of project into the future, twenty twenty four. Right now, do you consider Donald Trump to be the favorite to be the next president of the United States? I think he's a slight favorite, right? I mean, there's still a lot of unknowns, but um, I think if you just read the polls, um, I think we just have to do a direct reading of the polls and whether he's a couple points ahead or even maybe one or two points behind, let's not forget that he has this advantage in the electoral college. And it does seem that a lot of voters have turned away from Biden um, um, because of the economic track record um, primarily. Uh, and um, also just, you know, frankly, Biden's age has worn him down. Um, and I think his image is just deteriorated significantly. So I do think you would have to consider uh, Trump a slight favorite. I think 
any other candidate would probably be a pretty strong favorite against Biden at this point. I may have jumped ahead. Let me let me go back to what we're still doing, which is having a Republican primary. Is it possible for Trump to be beaten by Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis? And if you think yes, which of those two is most likely to do it? I think it's 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 it looks the path the math looks pretty tough right now. Um, I I think a lot will hinge on um, in what happens in Iowa. I think DeSantis only helped himself with the debate. Um, the question is, can he either survive? Can he win? Uh, you know, is, you know, can he you know can he somehow surge and win or maintain a strong second in Iowa um, to keep going? I think uh, De- Haley has a little bit of a, you know, maybe a little bit of an easier job because of independents who can vote in the New Hampshire primary. If she can, can really consolidate that vote, I think she could actually win and come out with a pretty decent burst of momentum heading into South Carolina, and it could change the game. I think either has a legitimate path, but it is right. I mean, the math overall is pretty tough when you're looking at a 40 point national polling advantage for Donald Trump right now. I, I'm interested in your comments and, and thoughts on on this sort of idea about Haley and DeSantis. And that is I, I always assumed DeSantis had a higher ceiling because he comes from the Trump era. You know, he is of the two of them. He's the one that most exhibits the Trump yeah. attitude. Uh, I mean, you saw it with Newsom uh, on the debate. I mean, oh, you know, years ago, Republicans would have never pulled a, you know, a, a picture of a poop map out of their jacket and said, look at this. That just never would have happened. You know, that that would. But but that sort of fighting spirit he embodies. So I've always thought that if Republicans were going to move on from Trump, they would only do so if they could move on to somebody that they thought was basically in that new attitude framework. Haley, of course, in my opinion, represents a throwback to the pre-Trump era. So you've got the BT and AT. And I just thought there was, I, I have thought, imagine that there's a lower ceiling for the BT than there is for the AT style of candidate. Do you agree with that? Um, uh, or do you think Haley is able to dip dip off of, uh, or fish off both piers? I think that, uh, look, I think it, it pr- pr- prior, right, a, a few months ago, uh, you would have clearly said DeSantis has a higher yeah, ceiling. Um, he's currently pr- doing really no better in sort of the head-to-head matchups against Trump, but I do feel like that is partly just his generally um, weakened standing, right, in the national polls that, you know, if he can recover some of that support, and I think we saw that really in this debate, um, if he can, uh, you know, claw back some of the soft Trump voters, uh, you know, I think that DeSantis nationally, right, has the better path, right, uh, in terms of because of everything you just said. Um, I think the early state path for Nikki Haley is a little bit clearer, right, mm. in order for her to get wins. And the, the real challenge is going to be, uh, you know, how do we avoid a repeat? You know, if you're if you're keen on making sure that Donald Trump is not the Republican nominee, how do you avoid a repeat at this point of 2016? Um, where there really is, you know, you have two candidates who are about evenly matched um, and there's no real impetus to decide either way um, because neither of them has yet shown um, such dominant strength, right, that they're able to elbow the other aside. Um, so I think that I think that is currently working in Trump's favor right now that just like you had in 2016, you had Ted Cruz on, on his right and John Kasich on his left, um, you could see a, a something similar play out 
um, and we will see, of course, but um, but um, right now it's looking headed in that direction. Let's presume that neither DeSantis uh, nor Haley can slip through the eye of the needle here and that we do get Donald Trump and that the Democrats decide to plow forward with Joe Biden um, in a general election between the two with Trump on the ballot. He has not done it in either election. He's gotten 46 percent of the vote in two straight national elections. Is it possible for Trump to win the popular vote against Biden? And I'm going to caveat that with, will it be, if he can, is it because third parties, if they get ballot access, can drag Biden down enough to really give Trump a uh, a mid-40s plurality? Two, two things. I think he could absolutely even do it in a two-person race if the numbers you're seeing about non-white voters really materialize. Um, that's really where... Um, you're actually going to see, uh, you know, any movement, I think, towards a I, I, I think, you know, you have Biden's uh, base of, let's say, college educated suburban women who I think is pretty locked in. Um, that is probably not going to go for Trump. Um, you have Trump's base of, you know, white rural working class voters who's not going to go for Biden. Um, where I see the potential for big shifts is if we see these we see these gains with uh, black voters, Latino voters really materialize in a really big way as you're starting as you're kind of seeing in the polls, um, that could um, absolutely uh, you know form the nexus of Trump eking it out and you know maybe having a few point victory in the popular vote. Um, I also think you can't discount the third party candidates. There's going to be such. I think, you know, these two guys again, right? I mean, there's going to be such sense and yeah. there's going to be, going to be such um, people fatigue um, for these two candidates. I think you're going to see a rise in the third party vote, um, no matter what the configuration of that, whether it's even if it's RFK, right? Who people think steals more from Trump. Um, he seems to steal more from Biden just because I think the attack surface uh, is much larger in the Democratic base right now. Um, you just have a lot more Democrats who are dissatisfied with Joe Biden than you have Republicans who would be dissatisfied with Donald Trump, even with an active primary challenge against him. Give us some advice as a pollster on how to how to read these polls right now with Trump, Biden, and then throwing RFK and other third parties on. I mean, RFK is obviously you know, bumping up against 20% in some of these national surveys. You throw the other ones in there. Um, they go over 20%. Um, we don't know what the no labels people are going to do. Is it artificially high right now because the campaign hasn't really been engaged and people will go back to their corners? Or should we be, you, you just sort of said that you think there will be a higher third party vote, but are we talking about any of these people being able to break into double digits? And could any of these people be, determinative or enough to change, uh, you know, the outcome of a Wisconsin or a Georgia or, or an Arizona or a Pennsylvania? Uh, yeah. So I think that the prospects, I mean, I think what, what we're kind of looking at is something similar to what we faced in 2016, um, where you had a double digit, um, uh, third parties polling in the double digits. Uh, and that that typically collapses the closer, the closer and closer you get to election day. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, and that ended up the third party vote ended up at 6%. Uh, I think it absolutely had that had the potential to decide the election um, in the sense of, um, you know, even, you know, in the close elections that we have in this country, um, that even somebody taking two or 3%, um, if they're taking it primarily from one candidate, 
will make a huge difference. So it doesn't have to be somebody, you know, in, in some sense, like having somebody who could get up to 20%, they kind of have to take from both sides in order to do that. Um, so the absolute size of the third party vote is not going to be sort of what ultimately kind of predicts whether or not, you know, they take more from, you know, much more from one side or the other. I think, um, you know, that's going to be due to other factors. But the polls right now, you know, unless you have uh, in, a lot depends on ballot access. Um, so you have a lot of candidates who were initially going to start running Uh uh, on the Libertarian Party or the Green Party who have ballot access in most of these states and are able to consistently get on the ballot in either all 50 states or 40 states. Um, you have a lot of people doing their own solo ventures. Um, so you initially had that Cornell West uh, threat. Yeah. And yeah, it doesn't seem to be very organized, right, uh, you know, in doing that. So I doubt he'll be on very many ballots. And there's also no indication that RFK has really ramped up in terms of ballot access, and especially in the swing states. And Georgia, for instance, is very hard to get on yeah. the ballot. Only folks so who, are, so right, are ballot access, are you are you are you thinking then it's most likely that these no labels people, because they have money and they've been sort of working towards this, they're the most likely to have the most ballot access? I think they're of the new entrants, right? They're not the, the the parties who aren't already established. I think, yes. The question is, can they put forward a candidate who's going to excite a lot of people? And I, I just don't think that based on the, the kind of profile uh, of candidate that they're, you know, they're kind of, you know, sort of sifting through kind of these political has-beens. Uh, you know, you have yeah. Joe Manchin flirting with him. Uh, and they just don't poll as strongly, I think, as somebody who... Um, can actually capitalize on, I think, the large scale dissatisfaction, particularly among younger voters. Um, and so I think somebody with a little bit more of an offbeat message like an RFK um, actually has a higher ceiling um, because he can take a lot of these less committed voters. But if you have something that looks engineered by inside the Beltway consultants, um, I think that's that's probably not going to be very impactful uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. Plus, the Kennedy name, it transcends our culture. Right. I mean, you know, with all due respect to Joe Manchin or or other people like that. I mean, these are political names that people in the Beltway know. And of course, if you live in West Virginia, you know, it. but they don't really transcend culture. The Kennedy name. Uh, people feel like they know the Kennedys, whether you feel like you know this guy or not, I would encourage you to look into it because he's he's really kind of a crazy lunatic conspiracy theorist and has been at the forefront of all crazy conspiracy theories for a long time, many of them on the left. But that name does carry weight with people. And they're like, well, I don't really like these two choices. The Kennedys, you know, I've heard of them and 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 people tend to say nice things about the Kennedys. So, yeah, I'll be willing to tell a pollster today. Uh, that, that I'd, I'd rather do that than, than serve what the Republican and Democratic parties are giving me. Patrick Ruffini, your book is called Party of the People Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition, Remaking the GOP. I assume we can find it everywhere that books are sold. You can. Did you do an audio aversion? Uh, it is an audio book. It is on ebook. It is in all formats. Did you record it or did you get a, like a professional? I didn't record, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I patience for that. I'm always, when I talk to authors, I'm always fascinated about like, cause some people record their own books and I just, the thought of like sitting at a booth and recording your own book is sort of a fascinating uh, uh, thing to me, but you, you obviously opted out and, and uh, got, got somebody to do the work for you, which 
I'm sure save you a tremendous, <laughs> a tremendous amount of time. Patrick, thanks for being with us here. You've been a tremendous guest. Uh, if people want to find you on social media, where's the best place to follow your um, insights and commentary? Uh, Patrick Ruffini everywhere. Uh, I also have a sub stack at patrickruffini.com. All right. Patrick Ruffini, Echelon Insights, author of Party of the People. You have been listening to the Flyover Country podcast with Scott Jennings. Next week, we'll have the other side of this conversation with a Democrat political operative named Mark Riddle, a Kentuckian, and now a Floridian who's been involved in Democratic politics for a very long time. We'll get his views on whether Joe Biden is in as much trouble as Patrick seems to think that he is. Thanks for listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.